Hey, glad you're here for Super Bowl The Full Experience Part 2. Hope you enjoyed Part 1, Twins Devin and Jason McCourty, and what it feels like to play in a Super Bowl, to win it and lose it. This episode features more tremendous storytelling on two aspects of the game that are always highly scrutinized, the Super Bowl halftime show and the officiating. My guest Charles Copland says he experienced 12 minutes of terror, followed by tequila, each time he co-produced the halftime. And former official John Perry, who worked three Super Bowls, tells a great story about the pressure of being head ref in Super Bowl 53, the game right after the infamous officiating debacle in the NFC Championship game down in New Orleans. Remember the pass interference non-call in the final minutes that the Saints will always believe cost them their Super Bowl shot and put the NFL officials under fire. So to follow that, no pressure, right? Risk-reward is one of the biggest reasons why you do it uh, from an official standpoint. You, you look around and you think, why would anybody do this? You never, <laughs> you never can win. You never have a home game. No matter what you do, 50% of the people are going to hate you. Uh, no matter how good you get, they won't remember the, you know, in, a, in an average NFL football game, there's 153 plays. Generally, there are two or three mistakes. They're human. That's where everybody focuses. No one will talk about the 150 that they did correctly. It's just, you get used to it. Uh, But the challenge is to go out and try to work a perfect game. Impossible, but you can strive to excellence. And you know, as an official, when you leave that football field and you're going in to take a shower, you know right there whether you were good or bad. The unique insight of John Perry is coming up. But now the Super Bowl halftime shows. Of course, Super Bowl 56 in L.A., Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Mary J. Blige, Kendrick Lamar were booked. Sort of full circle because Super Bowl One was also in L.A. That inaugural halftime featured the University of Arizona Symphonic Marching Band, the Grambling Marching Band, Al Hurt on trumpet, and the Anaheim High School High Steppers Drill Team and Flag Girls. The NFL has come a ways in terms of star power and the emphasis placed on the halftime show. For years, of course, it's been sponsored over tens of millions of dollars to the NFL every year. It's also brought some controversy. The infamous wardrobe malfunction, 18 years ago now. Now, the following year, the NFL stepped in and took a much more active role in producing the halftime. And my good buddy, Charles Copland, became the NFL executive in charge. I met Charles when he ran teleprompter in my early days with SportsCenter. He wasn't very skilled at that but he had many more important talents, became a producer at ABC Sports, eventually an NFL vice president in charge of programming and the co-executive producer of the halftime show for the six years that featured Sir Paul McCartney, the Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, The Who, and the greatest Super Bowl halftime performance ever, Prince. Okay, Charles, we're going back in time to the years that you supervised the Super Bowl halftime show for the NFL. First half winding down, where are you? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? I am walking from one of the suites inside the stadium to the production truck. And I am feeling sheer terror and panic. Why? That's what I'm feeling. Because, I mean, logistically, the show is a Herculean effort. And while you plan for months and for every contingency and all that stuff, at the end of the day, you know, like, the repercussions, if anything were to go wrong, are, are pretty, pretty drastic. So, yeah, I mean, you're just like, fingers crossed. There's only 110, 120 million people watching, right? There's only a, a, a show that is 12 minutes with about eight minutes to set up a hugely elaborate stage. What could go wrong in that? What could go wrong? Exactly my point. <laughs> And when the 12 minutes are done and it's come off well and you've entertained that many millions of people? Shots of tequila, lots of hugs, uh, feeling of of tremendous relief, elation, and a lot of reading of texts. You oversaw what many people would consider the greatest Super Bowl halftime show ever, Prince in Miami. Many would consider it one of his greatest performances, period, even though it was only 12 minutes long. Take us through how you got Prince, how you put the show together, and then how it unfolded in Miami with that incredibly dramatic rainstorm. Well, we had um, 
people working for us that would reach out to the artists on our behalf. And Prince was interested early on. So um, we, we felt like with that particular show, we had somebody who was really uh, invested in doing a really, really good job. And he was so invested that he invited us to his hotel room at the Beverly Wilshire in Beverly Hills to play us um, a, a track. He had recorded a reference track of the full show, full 12 minutes. And uh, it was an amazing experience meeting him. It's, it's, it was quite comical, uh, but he had done his homework. You could tell on the other shows, he almost went into it kind of with a competitive spirit. And I think to your point of it being his best performance, you know, for us, he was such the obvious choice because he was like James Brown and Jimi Hendrix rolled into one. And he also had great appeal for the players, which was important. So, uh, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. But he he was so diligent and had so much vision in the show that he put together that that uh, it was he was a great partner. So you're in that hotel room in L.A. You're listening to the 12 minutes that he's produced. What what's the reaction? What are you what are you thinking? Well, I have to tell you that that whole experience in that hotel room was surreal because first of all when we knock on the door he opens it and there's there's prince and he doesn't look human like he he does not <laughs> look human he's he's diminutive in stature and he's wearing a canary yellow suit and makeup and he invites us in very warmly and we start to walk in the door and we realize that prince is actually gliding he's not walking he's gliding and that was because he was wearing those Healy sneakers, you know, that light up in the back. So he's oh, with really the wheels rolling on him, yeah. around the hardwood floor <laughs> of Beverly Wilshire Hotel. And um, he sat us down. There were about four or five of us. He sat us down and he's kind of a low talker. So we're in this suite on this white couch and he's talking really low and he's, he's speaking in really esoteric, creative language. And he could you could kind of tell he was getting a little frustrated with us in terms of like not completely understanding where he was going. And so then he just said, well, rather than keep talking, I'm just going to have you experience this in the fourth dimension. And we were kind of like, don't really know what that is, but just, just go with it. Does it mean you have to take something to get to the fourth dimension? He didn't (laughs) offer that. So he, he wheeled over to this sound system that he had in his hotel suite and he he hit play or whatever and it was just so loud and it was that thunder crack which was that lightning strike thunder crack which was the beginning of we will rock you and we sat there for 12 minutes just listening to this music playing extremely loud and hearing for the first time oh he's not going to play little red corvette or raspberry beret he's he's covering songs he's doing uh, Proud Mary or All Along the Watchtower or Best of You. And we were just taking it in. And then he wheeled over about eight minutes into this thing and he had a box of tissues and he just gave each one of us a tissue. And then he wheeled away and the music kept playing. <laughs> and then uh, when it finally ended, you know, the, the beautiful ending of Purple Rain, he, he came back in, he wheeled back in and he now had a tissue and he held the tissue aloft and suggested to all of us to hold the tissue aloft. And we were kind of like, wonder how this is going to end. And then he just sort of put it, the tissue to his eye, like it brings a tear to your eye. And he started laughing and we were all very happy and we left the room and we were like, this is going to be a great show. You know what? It does bring a tear to your eye. And anybody that plays that, that performance on YouTube, it is, it is powerful. It is moving. Purple Rain at the end is a sing-along get the Florida A&M band is a part of it. Then the rain is dumping down. The legend has it that, okay, it's one of those Miami, you're from Miami. I live down there. It's one of those torrential rainstorms that only the tropics can deliver. Right. And it's like that all day. And I know there was some anxiety among um, various parties, not among Prince apparently about whether or not he could do this, you know, four different electric guitars, the dancers are in six-inch heels. The stage is slick. I mean, a lot can go wrong with that. And as legend has it, Charles, when he was 
ask about the rain. He said, can you make it rain harder? Yeah. And I don't true. care if you're a performer or an, I mean, that's just, that's what you want to hear. Game on. I'm, I'm ready for this. Yeah, no, that's true. And you know, you're, you're right. Uh, we both are Floridians. I was born there and, and, uh, it doesn't really rain like that in February. It rains like that in like June. So it was really freaky weather. And there was a concern, like, what if he doesn't go on? There's no plan B. And then when we got word that he said, can you make it rain harder? I'm like, ah, so Prince. So it's tremendous. Yeah, I don't know. And, if that it, and it, be you tough. know, it added, obviously it added to the show because um, when you're playing a song called Purple Rain and it's pouring and the lighting is all purple and it's hitting the raindrops, I mean, it, it just couldn't have worked out any better. But at the time, it was pretty scary. Two years later, Bruce Springsteen, very different kind of artist. He doesn't work with pyrotechnics. He doesn't work with elaborate light shows. He does three-hour shows. Now you got 12 minutes to deliver this. And he also knocked that out of the park. People consider that a great performance by Bruce and the E Street Band. But, but take us through that process. How do you get a Springsteen show squeezed in into 12 minutes? And when he goes on, by the way, he's not rushing to the music. He's kind of taking us to church. He's playing the role of a preacher. And I'm sure you're thinking, Bruce, tick-tock, tick-tock, let's get to some songs here because it's such a different animal for him, that kind of show. Yeah, another guy who, in his own way, was super competitive. You know, these guys understood this is not their show. This is a unique situation. And they rose to the challenge of trying to adapt not only their songs, but their performance to maximize the, the power that they would have within the constraints of a show like that. His manager, John Landau, even said to us, the Super Bowl has been about electronic energy. We want to bring the stage lower and we want to have this intimate human energy. And, you know, you're not in a position where you're foolish enough to tell an artist what to play. So you are at the mercy somewhat of what they're choosing. And, you know, Bruce's deal is he, he walks around, he entertains, he takes his audience to church and he had the right songs. So it was just a question of like supporting him. And he had a lot of, uh, he really rose to the challenge of trying to conform to the 12 minutes. He was one of the few artists that we worked with that wanted to rehearse ahead of time. And so we met him in New York City at 8.30 in the morning. They were on the stage, boom. And he kept doing it over and over again. And he would be like, 12.45, I got it to 12.45, you know? So he was, he was fired up. Yeah, that again is just not what you think of Springsteen worrying about time constraints, but that's why it was so brilliant. He, he, he can play to the back of the house in a huge arena or stadium, but that night, if you watch it, he played to the millions and millions watching at home right to the cameras. It's pretty masterful, pretty hard thing for an artist to pull off. And I'm, I'm sure as a Bruce fan, you're sitting there watching this unfold thinking, yes, very different from Prince. But man, he nailed it in his own way. Well, Bruce was our white whale because he had always said no to the Super Bowl halftime show. And uh, he John Landau later told me that that uh, I mean, I know this story to be true, that Bruce called him during the Tom Petty show the year before. And he said, why the bleep aren't we doing this show? And I think <laughs> um, we had to prove that it was a credible musical show and not just kind of a novelty. And I think the artists that we had the years prior um, really went a long way. And, and also, you know, frankly, and this is something that still holds true. Artists were having harder and harder times selling their music. The industry was changing, album sales were declining, and this was an opportunity to give an artist a tremendous amount of exposure. And John Landau is as smart as they come as a manager and, and realized that some of the other artists did, we're not gonna get any better promotion than this. So Bruce finally says yes because of Petty, and Petty was sandwiched in between the years of Prince and Springsteen. You're a huge Tom Petty fan as I am, but he wasn't the first choice of the folks there. And he was a guy that I know you've told me had an unusual reaction when you were kicking around the idea of him playing the Super Bowl halftime. Yeah. I think Tom kind of felt maybe he wasn't worthy of it, which is ridiculous. I mean, just ridiculous. But um, he, I think 
had to really gear up to do it. Um, he Why do you think he felt that, Charles? His biggest following Prince is obviously a challenge. Why do you think Petty felt, I'm not worthy of this halftime stage? I think because Tom Petty is is a complicated, was a complicated man. He's a tremendous talent. I think while he is, was a fantastic performer and the Heartbreakers are a fantastic band, I think he's more introspective. Bruce and Prince have more swagger. Uh, and I think uh, one thing that was was great is that everybody, including Tom and the band and his manager, Tony Dimitriotis, we all knew that he had songs that are anthems that everybody knew and that we would be able to design a production around him to put him in the best possible light. I think he got more comfortable as we went on. I also think he was concerned with the commercialism of the Super Bowl. You know, the man that sang I Won't Back Down is, you know, part of the Bridgestone halftime show. And we had to sort of convince them that, you know, television from its very earliest days was presented by a sponsor. But those were the kinds of things that I think he was very careful with and wisely so. But to no one's surprise, probably even not even to his surprise, he was fantastic. And he found that much like artists who are more current and more recent, like Lady Gaga, Justin Timberlake, that the platform that the halftime provided was immensely lucrative. He, you had a conversation with Bruce about it afterwards. Many of the songs he played, you talked about, were quite old. They've been out for a long, long time, but now new people were hearing him. He made cash off of that. It, it worked out yeah. for him. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the metrics of artists that play the Super Bowl halftime show, in terms of downloads, in terms of concert sales, the weeks and months after, I mean, even Paul McCartney, if you go back and you look at McCartney's career at that point, I'm not suggesting he wasn't, you know, a Beatle and, and he wasn't at the top of the list, but the, to your point, you're, you're being introduced to a whole new audience. You're being reintroduced to an audience and also you're that the budgets for that show are quite high. So you're getting to perform your canon of songs uh, with tremendous production value. And as you suggested earlier, in front of 150 million people on TV and 80,000 high rollers in the stadium, the, the only thing that always had to be kept in mind from these artists is they weren't paying their money. This was not a ticket to see your show. So you had to be sort of aware that um, if you went deep on the album cut list, you know, that might not be. Well, the right let's talk choice. about Sir Paul. Sir Paul was the first halftime show that you oversaw at the NFL. And, and yes, he could have played hundreds of songs and could have gone a lot of different directions with this. But I guess in the years when the NFL was now taking a much more active role in the wake of the wardrobe malfunction, um, with, with Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake, everything had to be scrutinized, even with a guy like McCartney. You've told me what Paul was going to wear on stage. The NFL had to sign off on things like that, and then what Beatles songs he was going to play. Yeah, well, you have to remember, that was right after the wardrobe malfunction, and the paranoia from everybody um, was... It, when I look back at it now, it's ridiculous. I mean, there were concerns about him singing California Grass in Get Back. <laughs> How quaint. <laughs> right? And now it's the, the title of the Disney Plus documentary. Um, we had to walk with him into his dressing room where he showed us what he was going to wear. I mean, even if he wanted to commit a wardrobe malfunction, I don't even know what that would have been. <laughs> the band had t-shirts made up that that was a saying that poked fun of the wardrobe malfunction. So there was just this incredible like concern and it sounds absurd at the time, but you know, like it, it, I, we had to resist going all the way back to up with people because there was, there was so much paranoia about this stuff. But he comes through and he's very cooperative. And then the year after that are the Rolling Stones. And the Stones catalog contains a few more songs and a few more lyrics that could rattle some people. And so after dealing with cooperative Paul McCartney, here comes more rock and roll royalty, but you've got Keith and you've got Mick, you got these two alphas. What was dealing with the Stones like in the run-up in terms of 
trying to figure out what they were going to do with their 12 minutes. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. We were at the Hollywood Bowl seeing the Rolling Stones and we ran into the McCartney guys who we had worked with the year before and they were tough. Paul was awesome, but they were tough. And uh, they looked at us and they laughed and they were like, who's worse, us or the Stones? <laughs> and we were like, that's kind of a tie. Um, the Stones were just different because you have two leaders. So you're dealing with, you know, kind of different camps. And the Stones are, are you know, they're, they're not that Paul isn't a phenomenal live performer, but the Stones are, are a looser band and, and they approached it in a very different way. And with Paul, we were very, very aware and we had spent months going through the four songs, uh, Drive My Car, Get Back, Hate Shoot and Live and Let Die. And the Stones were still not exactly sure what they were going to play, even several days before the show. Which wow, is, people have to understand how different that is. They've talked about how much work went into 12 Minutes. So in, in their view, there was a lot of labor on their part, and it may seem like they just winged it at the last minute, but I, I know they took it seriously. There, there's that shot after the performance when they're kind of wheeled away in golf carts, and you know it takes a lot, I think, to make you know Mick Jagger jump over the moon, but it, it looked like they were pretty happy with how things had gone, and in the end, what, you didn't have to censor lyrics to start me up, which you, you make a grown man cry, you make a dead man come. I mean, right out of the gate, that's their first song, and you'd rather not have that on global TV. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> Don Misher, who's a legendary executive producer and director, uh, directed that show, and he also directed the McCartney show. And with McCartney, like, he knew every beat. But he was in the truck going, where's Keith? There's Keith. Okay, camera four. Like it was literally, it was like he was directing a football game. And uh, we were, yes, in a situation where the Stones wanted to play two songs. Forget whether or not like you wanted to have a choir perform, you can't always get what you want, or you wanted to do like Ruby Tuesday or whatever, whatever your favorite songs are. And it's always so difficult to decide on a set list. But they chose two songs, Start Me Up, and a song from their new album, Rough Justice, which at the time was a bigger bang, and it was their single. And that's why they were doing the show. They wanted to sell records. And both of those songs had lyrics. You mentioned one of them, and Rough Justice, there's a lyric in there. I won't say that and lyric. <laughs> I won't say that lyric. And I wouldn't have even said the Start Me Up lyric, but it's your show. So, um, and uh, we would not permit them to, to sing that. And, and it got into a whole conversation about censorship. And we said to them, you're going to have to take out that audio yourself and whatever they say, that's, that's exactly what happened. They, they were in charge of their own audio and they did a dropout on those two songs. Uh, the two lyrics in those two songs, start me up and rough justice. I mean, in the end, it's kind of silly and much ado about nothing, but those are the kind of things, you know, we, we had Stevie wonder on hold to, to he was our pregame act. He was ready to go for halftime. Probably if we needed them, we didn't tell him, but that was our plan B. Well, that's great behind the scenes, just in case uh, the stones get uncooperative the last minute, let's bring in Stevie. Um, in the years after you left the responsibility of overseeing the show, the focus kind of changed a little bit, Charles. There were these combo acts. It wasn't enough to bring in one singular kind of musical giant. It was sort of, let's appeal to different demographic groups. So you had Bruno Mars and the Chili Peppers. Now, you might not put those two acts together. Katy Perry brought on Lenny Kravitz, Missy Elliott, Coldplay. They, let's bring back Bruno Mars and Beyonce, who had done an earlier show. Then you got Lady Gaga, Justin Timberlake, Maroon 5, Travis Scott, Jennifer Lopez and Shakira. So the focus really, really changed after that. And, and you've told me this. You wanted to, in, in the years when you oversaw it, you had the same idea to kind of do a collaborative act, but it, it just never kind of came together. Yeah, I, I also should point out that they've definitely gone younger, which I think is smart. Um, but we, we would always try and figure out, like this solo artist thing is not going to last. Like you're running out of artists. And, and the songs themselves are really super important because you don't want to alienate an audience. And certain uh, music is polarizing. So the thought was that if we can put together collaborations, we can reinvent this thing instead of always just picking one artist. And I had meetings with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, with Rolling Stone. I was fortunate enough to spend some time with Rick Rubin. And at least when I was there, uh, we couldn't pull it off. I think the thing you always have to be careful about is do these artists together make a better show? 
because, you know, I love the Red Hot Chili Peppers and I love Bruno Mars. That probably would have been a better show if it was just Bruno, but it definitely adds to the appeal. And for instance, this year, I think they're, they're going to do something which I think is going to be pretty special. And, uh, my hat's off to them for for being able to figure out how to do it. Yeah, this. I want to get to that because that is a lot of uh, excitement around, you know, Snoop, Dr. Dre, Mary J. Blige, Kendrick Lamar, again, putting people together, but Jay-Z kind of overseeing this, his company involved in producing it. And Jay-Z's a guy that I know you were hopeful of involving much, much earlier that didn't exactly come to pass then, but in this next Super Bowl, it will. Yeah, we had, I thought we had a deal with Jay and I, I there were certain people um, that decided for whatever reason that that they didn't want to do it and that that wasn't jay jay was ready to go so i find it kind of interesting now that he he's the executive producer of the super bowl halftime show so the powers um, that be the network involved basically they didn't love that I, idea I mean, at the time that year was in dallas cowboys have some say i think and fox has some say and and you know hip-hop's polarizing and and uh but i think things have changed. Um, and I think Colin Kaepernick has changed a lot of the way they've approached this. I think, I think things have leveled out for good reasons. Um, and I think that ever since Jay-Z has been involved, um, I think this is year three, the shows have been really, really good. And, and he's been able to put together this type of artist. So, you know, maybe we were a little before our time with that one, but, uh, he, I, he would have been great and still will if he decides to put himself on the stage. And obviously his wife ended up doing the show a couple of times. So uh, I'm glad he's involved. I think, I think they're doing good things. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, 30 years after the chronic, well, the, the, speaking of lyrics, I may have to tweak some things there too, but, but all those folks on stage in LA, by the way, in daylight because of the West coast kickoff. So I'm, I'm not sure the last time those folks all got together on stage and performed in, in, in sunlight you know, outdoors, but I, I look forward to it. Daylight's hard. You know, I think people like a lot of people, uh, I think the last one in daylight might've been the Coldplay Beyonce Bruno show. And, you know, you gain so much, you take Prince out of nighttime or Bruce or some of these other shows we've talked about. There's something called theatrical lighting and you lose that. I would imagine the producers of the show this year have thought about that, but it's, it's more of a challenge when you're doing the show in daylight on the West coast. I want to close Charles with stories about a performance. It was not at a Super Bowl halftime. You two did a halftime show. But it was, I think, if it isn't if it isn't Prince, this is perhaps the most powerful, memorable musical performance associated with any sporting event. And that's U2 and Green Day in 2006 when the Superdome reopened and they performed before a Saints game in the wake of Katrina when that, that sports venue had been turned into a shelter. It, it was a, a, a grim and gruesome place during that, that tragic hurricane. But the city was going to come back to life and U2 and Green Day were going to be a part of that. And even though you didn't oversee that in the Super Bowl halftime, take me there for, for that musical performance that sort of well, like changed everybody. Yeah, that one was all heart. You know, that was a really cool experience. The league wanted to do something because it was going to be the first game back at the Superdome, which obviously had been a shelter for people who were homeless from Hurricane Katrina. And the Saints were very much a part of that city. And they had been on the road the year before. And this was going to be the first game back at home. And it was a Monday night game on ESPN. And we had heard um, from the guy that we had hired, the late David Saltz, who was a real valuable uh, part of our team, that, you know, hey, stop whatever you're doing. I think we can get you too. And I'm like, what? And The Edge had the Music Rising charity where they were giving uh, musical instruments to, to people who were less fortunate. And long story short, you two had been doing something with Green Day and one thing led to another. And the next thing we knew, we were putting together a show at the beginning of the game and you two came on and sang Beautiful Day and Bono, you know, riffed about the Ninth Ward and all that stuff. And of, of everything that I was ever involved with, that was the emotional high that that was that place was you talk about church, there was something really special going on in, in that building that night. I can do the emotion in your voice right now. Just thinking about that, that's a power way beyond a band and music and a football game to sort of help that city get resurrected. 
in that time. Yeah, and it was cool because he they they were so thankful. I was not involved in this show, but they were so thankful with the the Super Bowl that they had done after 9-11, which was was very special. And um, I think they really appreciated the platform and to be able to come in there and do something that was philanthropic because the Super Bowl halftime is many, many things, but it's not philanthropic. I mean, it's a commercial, it's a commercial <laughs> performance. That's for sure. Yeah. And this was, you know, this, nobody really got paid for this. This was sort of no pun intended pro bono. And uh, it just was one of those things where it was an accident and it came together in the best way you possibly could. And it healed the city. And the Saints, you know, the rest is history. They went on, blocked the kick, the punt at the beginning of the game, won the game. So everybody that was involved with that, I think, gets emotional and thinks that was one of the best things they were ever involved with for the right reasons. Well, thanks for sharing stories. I would encourage people to go back and watch some of these performances on YouTube because when the game's unfolding, you're trying to get a sandwich, maybe trying to use the facilities, and, and it's a it's a weird way to appreciate music with perhaps a crowd full room. When you sit back there and you watch these there's a power to them. So I know you, you take great pride in the role that you played those years. And, and, and thanks for sharing the stories. Yeah, thanks for having me. For more inside stuff that's NFL related, check out a new podcast that Charles co-hosts, Out of Our League, wherever you get your podcasts. Up now, John Perry. Now, you might recognize John as the NFL rules expert for ESPN on the Monday Night Football broadcast. He was an NFL official for 19 years, the last 12 as a head referee. That's the man in the white hat in charge of the game. John worked in three Super Bowls, including that one in Miami where Prince stole the show and the one the McCourty twins won together with the Patriots. You see, it's all tying together. Well, John, help us understand what it feels like to be the head referee in charge of the most watched television event of the year and the ultimate game in football. My gut just started to beginning to churn a little bit as I was thinking <laughs> through that. Um, well, to put it in context, you know, number one, to get there is decades. You start off at Pop Warner, work your way through junior high, high school, Division three, JUCO, D2, D1, get into the NFL. And that just to learn that game takes three or four years. And then you hope that you're good enough to get there. So you're talking, when I, when I worked my first one, it was two and a half decades to get to that position. Uh, you get the assignment roughly two weeks before the game is played, uh, which gives you an opportunity to take care of tickets, travel logistics early on, so then you can turn your focus to the game. But uh, that two-week period has carries every emotion uh, from fear, anxiety, nerves, uh, reflection, uh, your family, all that they have put up with for all these this time to get to that position the build up you feel it everything all the conversations on every talk show is the super bowl you feel every ounce of that uh and it takes roughly about a half of a quarter the first quarter to find your rhythm and find your feet uh to to get back to what you know as normal which is just focusing on football. So you hope the worst case scenario is some controversial judgment call you got to make in the opening drive before you have your feet underneath you. <laughs> yeah, and I've been there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, getting through the coin toss. I mean, you're just trying to find saliva as you run out to the 50-yard line because you know 100, 100 million people are watching this. You, you described you know, decades of work, the simplest thing is to describe a holding panel, but you are the man on the microphone. And so you got to get the mic turned on and convey competence and command and confidence in the call and all that stuff. And you do see occasionally the nerves come into play just as they do for players and broadcasters in that situation. But did you have to remember how to, how to use the mouth and use your words in those situations? The, the first Super Bowl that I was a referee where the referee is the white hat, the, the guy that does all that coin toss ceremony, uh, truly right before I ran out, the, the, the media people that were standing next to me, I told the gal, I said, I have no saliva. I can't swallow. <laughs> and she felt for me. She gave me a lifesaver real quick. She said, here, put this in your mouth as you run out, chew it. You'll find some saliva. Thankfully, I did. I uh, got through it. Most coin tosses in the Super Bowl, ironically, 50 plus Super Bowls, 
you'll find an error, a mistake in the Super Bowl, uh, mispronunciation of a, of a celebrity, one of the guests. Um, we've had a coin toss where, where nobody called heads or tails before it was flipped. <laughs> they choked on the coin toss. Wow. I, yes, anything is possible made. in the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. So thankfully I got through mine. So the first time you refereed Super Bowl 46, 2011 season, it's in Lucas Oil, happens to be your home state of Indiana. It is the most watched program in U.S. television history at the time. 167 million people, you know, drifted through at least part of that game. That's when Eli Manning beat Brady and uh, and the Giants, you know, came came from behind to win. That, that Mario Manningham catch, I just watched the replay. Thankfully, the official looks to be in perfect position because it was the key play in the game, a beautiful over-the-shoulder throw. He gets the fingertips, gets the feet down, and the guy right there, thankfully, didn't blow the call at that moment. <laughs> yes, thankfully. <laughs> you know, the and, and I look back, nine penalties for 52 yards. Do you feel like if you haven't played a huge role in the outcome, if the teams have played cleanly, and there hasn't been a need to toss a lot of flags and get involved, that that's, that's a successful game for the officiating crew? Absolutely. No matter what level, no matter what game, the highest compliment is to go unnoticed. And I think we did that in that football game. Whether there was 9 or 19, you hope that they're all there. You hope you get good game flow, good pace. Um, but, yes, the, the highest compliment is for somebody to say, man, I don't, I don't remember seeing you on the Super Bowl. And certainly not be the, the subject of a, of a talk show afterward. That's right. uh, the, the, you're like an offensive lineman. The less said about you, the better, right? Because if they're <laughs> if they're using your name, it's usually not a compliment. <laughs> that is very true. So, fast forward, 2018 season, Super Bowl 53. It's in Atlanta, and and you're calling it a career, correct? So you have the honor of of officiating in your third Super Bowl, and the second time as the head referee. This comes one game after what's acknowledged as an officiating debacle in the NFC Championship game, the Rams and the Saints, involving a non-call of a pass interference that actually led to the changing of the rule where for the first time a judgment call could be challenged by a coach and reviewed by replay. So what was the context leading up to that Super Bowl off of talk shows? It was nonstop for two weeks that the Saints had been screwed you know, it had had a PI been called, they could win first down, kneel down, kneel down, chip shot, win the game. As it is, they lost in overtime. A lot of things went into that, but the officials took the brunt of that, John. So, what was that like? That period leading up to Super Bowl uh, in the twenty eighteen season. The one thing that that most people would not know is the amount of preparation uh, from an official standpoint that goes into a game. Uh, roughly for every hour of football, there's probably 10 hours of preparation. I'm most proud of my preparation for Super Bowl 53 because of everything that you just mentioned. The world, in our world, it was on fire. It was, uh, they were coming after officials. They couldn't believe how a crew could miss a call like that, impact the winning team, impact who went to the Super Bowl. Our world was attacked. And that's how we prepared for the Super Bowl. Everything that I showed my crew leading up to Super Bowl 53 kickoff dealt with World War II. Attacks, Normandy, leaving, leaving the boat, attacking the beach. Can't be defensive. We have to be proactive. you got to be aggressive but under control. Uh, I used speeches from Patton, uh, the president. Um, what was behind that? Trying to, trying to tell your, your fellow officials, what were you trying to to get them to understand by quoting all these generals and these military leaders. It was metaphoric. Uh, this is who we are. You, you didn't choose to be in this position like an 18 year old that was going to Normandy. We didn't choose to work the Super Bowl, the biggest game of our life following two weeks of criticism, get the noise out of your head, clear your head, find your rhythm, find your soft space and go out and do what you know you should be doing. Um, and for three days in Atlanta, every pregame had video, music, pictures, storylines, trying to metaphorically tell the crew, this is who we are. And at the end of the day, when it's 10, 11 o'clock at night, Sunday evening, 
we will be victorious. I had no idea that that kind of a motivational approach went into it. I know you guys are studying the rules. You're looking at what the teams have done. I assume you're watching some tape just like a broadcaster would to be aware of tendencies and things that might come up. I did not know that it was, it was motivational or inspirational. Is it just for that game, John, just because of the backdrop? Or is that normal stuff before a Super Bowl for the, for the head referee to, to play kind of a combination of, you know, Newt Rockney, Lombardi, whatever you coach <laughs> metaphor you want to make. Well, anybody that worked on my crew would tell you that's pretty, that was pretty much my shtick for 12 years. Um, we would certainly spend time on the X's and O's, everything that you mentioned, formations, tendencies, uh, red zone coverage, mechanics, zones, everything that goes into the game. The Super Bowl, however, is emotional. And it, it can be a mental triangle of issues if you don't find your quiet zone and your rhythms of what you do play after play after play and what you should be doing. It, it, takes, a, it, it takes a man to, to go to another human being that does what he does and says, you're out of, you're mentally not here. I can just see it. You're nervous. Find it. Find something. So you try to do some different things. Did that happen in the Super Bowl, John? Mid-game, did you have to go over and, and, and console a less experienced person in the crew and say, hey, listen, just like a, just like a quarterback would in the huddle, say, hey, calm down. I can see you're, you're off your game, but you're okay. You, you yeah, that? yeah, that game, for example, you know, all the officials wear the earpieces. We call them the O2O, official to official communication system. After the first drive, you could just tell that nobody was comfortable. I brought everybody together and said, take those things out of your ears. I don't want to hear anybody speak for the next five minutes. Everybody just work what you know you're supposed to work. Then we'll regroup on the next time out. And if it's better, we're all feeling better. We'll put them back in, which we did. What you do, you talk about being proactive and, and being aggressive, but basically it is reactive, right? I mean, you're reacting to what's going on in the field, just like we do in the booth. Yet it's dangerous sometimes to do anything that's challenging with the mindset of mistake avoidance. When I lecture people who want to do this, as you get to a point where your focus becomes not avoiding mistakes, but just being good, can you ever get to that place? Or is it always about don't miss this, don't don't overstep? Is it mistake avoidance at the highest level? Risk reward is one of the biggest reasons why you do it uh, from an official standpoint. You, you look around and you think, why would anybody do this? You never, <laughs> you never can win. You never have a home game. No matter what you do, 50% of the people are going to hate you. Uh, no matter how good you get, they won't remember the, you know, in, in an average NFL football game, there's 153 plays. Generally, there are two or three mistakes. They're human. That's where <clears throat> everybody focuses. No one will talk about the 150 that they did correctly. It's just, it, you get used to it. Uh, but the challenge is to go out and try to work a perfect game. Impossible, but you can strive to excellence. And you know, as an official, when you leave that football field and you're going in to take a shower, you know right there whether you were good or bad. You're a second-generation official, so you should have known better. I mean, your dad, Dave, was, was also a legendary official, happened to be a side judge, which means he's in sort of the defensive backfield looking for pass interference and things like that. In Super Bowl 17, that was the strike season, um, the 82 season, um, when, when Joe Theismann and John Riggins and the Washington team beat Miami's Killer Bees. So, so you were, at what age, and what were you feeling watching your dad you do that job. Did you have any idea at that moment that you would someday like to do what he was doing that very day? When I look back now, I, I do tell people, I think I was born to officiate. Uh, to put it to context, when I was growing up, my dad was a Division I basketball player or official and an NFL fo football official. My mother, who nobody talks about, uh, from an officiating standpoint, was a high school girl's official score for basketball she was a swimming referee so conversations at my house at dinner around the table they were odd and different than most scintillating uh, stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs> unless you're born to do what you're doing yeah I'm talking about false starts over the french fries um so yeah I, I think i was i think i was born to do this um i learned through osmosis when i was nine years old some of the best NFL football officials were coming to our house uh, 
because it was a mid, midway meeting point between Chicago and Michigan. So Jerry Markbrights and the Dean Looks and the Dick Dolaks, uh, these people would all converge on my dad's house in the summer for two or three days and go through the rules. And I was the, I was the gopher, get the Cokes, get the drinks. We need more ice. There were guys that chewed tobacco, <clears throat> you know, empty his spittoon. I did all that. Uh, so I was always around it. I don't remember a world ever without officiating. What do you remember about that day when, when the Washington took on Miami? Obviously you're hoping he doesn't blow it, but uh, were, were you, were you watching the game through that lens, John? I don't think I was then because I was 18, uh, immature. Uh, I think I was proud. I don't, I, at that point, of course, at 18, how do you really realize what it took to get there? Now I do know. Mm -hmm. uh, now I carry more pride today than I probably did at 18. Uh, as an 18-year-old, my dad, that's his job. That's just what he does. Uh, but now I get it. Well, relationships with parents obviously change over time. We don't view our dads the same way when we're 18 as we do when we're adults. But you would get into the profession and you get to the highest level of the profession that he once did. And he, he ended up being you know, supervisor of Big Ten officials, having an enormous impact on the sport and an officiating in another capacity. But, but his career, like a lot of players, but like very few officials, is actually cut short. His on-field career cut short by an injury, which is, yeah. ha had to be you know, jarring to his world. Yeah, he had a ball game in Chicago where Doug Plank took him out uh, by accident, freak, but the helmet went right into my father's hip. And all the years of basketball officiating up and down the court, the legs were probably deteriorating to begin with. But that hit, he never walked the same. Uh, two hip surgeries thereafter, never walked the same. So, John, you lose your dad. For many of us, that's, that's an overwhelming emotional experience. And then you referee in a Super Bowl for the first time in 46 in your home state in Indianapolis. And that's the Giants over the Patriots games we're talking about. What were your emotions going into that game and, and as it unfolded? You had to feel a presence. I mean, you, you had to know that you know, somewhere he's seeing it and he's proud. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Without a doubt. Uh, sorry. So I never worked a game uh, without talking to my father beforehand for kind of the, well, you mentioned Newt Rockney earlier. I would get the Newt Rockney speech from my dad, you know, hey, go out and have a great game, make them big, make them be there, do your thing. Uh, that season, he passed away in May of 2011. So I worked that entire season. I had none of those phone calls. Um, so it was tough. It was really tough. And I get the nod to work the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 46. It's in my own state. It's in a city that I lived in for 12 years. Uh, my family's there. I have a ton of friends there. And I walked around the city numb. Uh, we had the DP uh, patches that were used in the college game on the hats of the officials. And I took about a hundred everywhere I went, I dropped a DP uh, logo. Um, I had, my father was cremated. The remains of my father were in my flag. They were in my bean bag. I took remains ironically with, with another official whose father had passed away. And we, we probably would get in trouble today if they knew it, but we put some on the football field before the game, leading up to it, everything I thought about was my dad. Um, and I, I, we had a devotion Sunday morning uh, where we had a pastor come in, Reed Walker. It's a very long story, but at the end of the devotion, Reed realized I had, had allowed some fathers to speak, Carl Paganelli Sr., who was very much involved with football officiating, Gene Sterator Sr., uh, very much involved. So they spoke to the crew. Reed Walker realized that I was, I was the guy, I was the empty guy. My dad wasn't there to speak. And Reed Walker put me in the middle of the room, sat me on a chair, and he did a, a ceremony called the laying on of the hands. And there probably was 40 people in this room and they all touched each other and the inner people touched me. And Reed Walker said a prayer and 
it was uh, life-changing. That's the only way to say it. It was electric. I could feel everybody. And that, that just carried with me throughout the day. Barely got through the coin toss, got to the goal line to start the game. And I broke down emotional. I was, I was in tears, sobbing. And I don't remember who the punt return guy was. But he said, man, you must be really nervous. You're out here crying. I'm like, oh, it's a deeper story than that. I'll be fine. But I can tell you I've worked one perfect game in my life, and that was Super Bowl 46. I didn't work it. I, I would tell you with no doubt, with no reservation, that I had a guardian angel, I'm sure it was my father, that saw everything and relayed that information to me some way. Somebody would call, we had a pass interference. And I say, I know, his right arm grabbed the receiver's left arm. Yeah, how do you know that? You're not even looking down there. We had a down by contact fumble, actually with an inadvertent whistle by another official. Thankfully we had a flag. I knew all that. I said, well, thankfully we have flag because you blew your whistle. Yeah, I did. I, was, I went way too fast. Everything that took place that day, I saw it, processed it, but it was because of him. Wow, what an incredibly powerful experience. I mean, it's the sort of uh, thing that defies explanation. You do look for reasons beyond our understanding because to know exactly what's going on with 22 players and the entire officiating crew to that, that level, it's, it's multidimensional, the job you're doing. And it's, I mean, the perfect game is difficult for any player any broadcaster and certainly any official, but it, it's what an incredible thing that you had that, that day. Wow. What did, what happened? What did you think at the end? How did the game end when you walked off? I didn't want it to end. Because there was that connection that was hard yeah. to get anywhere else. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. So, after the controversial NFC title game, it's the Patriots and the Rams. It's the last game that you're officiating, right? Maybe the dullest Super Bowl ever. I don't know how it felt for you, but there were no touchdowns until the fourth quarter. The lowest scoring game ever. It, the, the Patriots defense was, was suffocating Jared Goff and Todd Gurley in this high-powered Rams offense, and people were tuning out because they wanted to see some touchdowns. What was it like being on the field for the, the dullest Super Bowl ever? <laughs> for well, most dull, fans anyway yeah dullest in some minds now we would tell you <laughs> that we were very proud of the fact that we anticipated exactly what you just mentioned we figured it was McVeigh versus Belichick and the opposite on the other sideline low scoring chess match a turnover will determine the win and I enjoyed it but I'm a purist I, I'm, I'm not a I like defense. I like those uh, 17 to 10s, 24 to 17s. I'm not a big fan of the 45, 31s. I, I like defense too, but 3-3 three, three, after 3, when you got a lot of casual people watching who don't watch a lot of games <laughs> and far from just a purist audience is not exactly what the network has in mind. But well, you know, in the end, there was drama. There was the, the Brady had the touchdown drive and they ended up scoring and then adding a field goal. But, you know... You got Belichick on one sideline. I think it was his ninth Super Bowl. Brady over there, same number. And you got Sean McVay, who's 33 at the time. I think he's probably half of Belichick's age. The dynamic would be interesting to hear from the official's perspective. Was the assumption would be Belichick's going to get the call. And this young whippersnapper over here, when in doubt, it's not going to go the Rams' way. I know that's what fans <laughs> think and not what officials think, but, that's, but that is what people are, that's what's going through their mind. Well, what should go through their mind is this. You do recognize it before the game. You do, I mean, you walk in a New England sideline with Tom Brady there and Bill Belichick there. Let's be realist. They are who they are, and they demand and should receive the respect that they've earned. On the other sideline is a young coach who's led his team to this point. It's exciting. 
you also recognize how brilliant this young guy is and how innovating he will become. Once the game begins, they, the, it's 11 on 11. Somebody's got a blue jersey. Somebody's got a white jersey. And all you know is the numbers on the back. You don't see 12 Brady. You see 12. And when you're talking to both coaches, it's the same. Because you never want anybody to say, well, you know what? They're treated a little bit differently. Now, I, I don't believe that that's true. And I can tell you that based on 19 years of doing it at that level, three Super Bowls, a championship. We don't really care once the game begins who anybody is. It's advantage or disadvantage. That's the way it should be. There's always going to be people think that ah, whoever's whoever's screaming the loudest or the most often or is trying to influence the call. He's doing that for a reason. He's, he's not just trying to exercise his voice. He's trying to lobby. He, th- he thinks sure. it's going to work. Sure. Uh, it's reassuring to hear that, that, that you don't think it happens that often that way. <laughs> I don't. Despite what others think, uh, you know, and sometimes there is conversation with Tom Brady that, you know, that will try to buy a call and be a little bit animated for TV purposes. You just, you just laugh. No, not enough. Give me a break. Pick a bigger one. The very first Super Bowl you work uh, in the 06 season down in Miami, one of the few rainy Super Bowls was famous for something other than the fact that the Colts beat the Bears. Prince gave in the rain one of the most legendary musical performances ever. Forget just Super Bowl halftimes. And it, it outrated the game. At, at one point, there were, you know, 140 million people, I think, tuned into that. So I don't know what you guys are doing at halftime. I assume you're not watching the halftime show, but you come out there for the third quarter. Any idea that like television and music history have just been made on that field? No. The interesting thing is you go week by week by week, and you got a 12-minute halftime. Now, it takes roughly 30 seconds to get to the locker room, 30 seconds to get back. So you really have an 11-minute halftime where you can use the restroom if you need to, uh, you might discuss a couple plays. You might discuss, hey, going to the second half, based on what I'm seeing, here's tendencies, formations that we need to discuss. You're trying to get that out of the way. Uh, officials have paperwork that they note their fouls and describe them. So there's, there's administrative stuff that we're doing in there in a 10 to 11-minute window. Then all of a sudden you get to this game, and it's 20 minutes plus. Um, you do know that it is Prince. Because you wish you were out there, especially being a music guy. Uh, I would have loved to have been, hey, I've already used a restroom. I think I'm going to spend the rest of the 18 minutes on the sideline. You can't even hear it, sadly. Um, But the stories when you were finished, of course, you got family and friends that uh, you meet up with and have dinner, drinks, whatever the case may be after the Super Bowl. And they're they're not talking about the game. They're talking about halftime. I wish you could have seen it. That's what my wife said. It was unbelievable. Actually raining, purple rain. The sheets are waving. (laughs) Come on. This is crazy. Um, I have watched it multiple times since then. And today, it is still as good as it was then. John is as correct about that as he was on 99.9% of his calls. If you haven't seen it in a while, watch Prince again on YouTube. It moves me every time. Now, there's one more scrutinized aspect of the Super Bowl we haven't touched on yet. The Super Bowl commercials. And it turns out we have one more story. We'll leave you with this. Back to 1999. Jennifer and I, not yet engaged, we're going to go to the Super Bowl in Miami. My Broncos had beaten her Jets to get there, and she was crushed, like all Jets fans. But as a consolation prize, Jennifer had booked a Super Bowl commercial. That's a huge deal. The money is good, great exposure. If it keeps running, you get residuals. So the commercial was for Pizza Hut. And Jennifer gets cast as a secretary for Donald J. Trump, real estate magnate. The shoot's in New York. It's Jennifer, Trump, a camera operator and an audio operator in the back of a limo for two hours in a driving rain, so they couldn't leave. So we get down to Miami. We're on a high. My Broncos are in the game. She's going to see her commercial. We go to a bar in the stadium to get, grab a drink before we go to our seats. And all of a sudden, Jennifer looks up and says, oh, I got my Super Bowl commercials on. 
We watch the commercial. And Jennifer says, oh my God, I got cut out. And then she said, well, you know, during the shoot, Mr. Trump did keep saying repeatedly, as I tried to fix my makeup, it's not about her. It's about me. Then she said, make that drink a double. <laughs> so there is our Super Bowl commercial story. You hope you enjoy both of our Super Bowl BTS, the full experience episodes to kick off season four. Huge thanks to John Perry and Charles Coughlin. Also grateful to my buddy Lee Fitting, ESPN Senior Vice President, longtime producer on College Game Day for his help on this episode. As always, grateful to Jennifer, my co-executive producer, and to Jason Whitekelp for his editing skills. Talk to you soon.